Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10 a.m. Thursday, January 24th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Hi, Julie. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let us get to the news. I want to start this week with Medicare for All, the rallying cry for progressive Democrats. We've talked at some length about how Democrats are more divided on how to proceed on health coverage than it would first appear. Um, But now we're seeing this play out in real time. Paige and Alice, you both wrote about this fight this week. Why don't you tell us what you found? Alice, you wrote about all the various alternative bills. Why don't you start and give us an idea of the landscape here? Yeah, so there is a very broad section of Democrats who say that making an optional buy-in or sort of on-ramp to full Medicare for all is really the way to go. It's not imposing it. It's not banning all private insurance, which is what the Bernie Sanders uh, bill would do. Um, And it would be a a transition with the eventual goal of, um, of reaching Medicare for all. And there are Yeah, we should we should back up for a second and (laughs) say say what 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 pure Medicare for all would look like. Sure. Pure Medicare for all would abolish all private insurance, including employer plans, and move everyone into this one uh, Medicare-like system. Um, A lot of the bills would also improve Medicare benefits even for existing senior enrollees. Um, and because Medicare is not a very generous benefit right, package. Right, exactly. And and that counters some of um, the attacks from the right saying that um, having Medicare for all would put more pressure and, and worsen existing coverage for seniors. And so this would be, no, it's improving it. So, but that doesn't take into account many, many other things, of course. So, um, but, but the uh, Medicare for more... Uh, and there's lots of different options and how generous that would be and if it would be just people over 55 or everybody or there's a Medicaid for all bill uh, in the House and Senate. Um, and there's a Medicare for people in the individual market bill, right? Right, right. It would be, that would be the public option. Exactly, exactly. And so this sort of whole genre of bills is getting attacked from the left and right. Um, folks on the left say anything that keeps private insurance in place, any sort of partial measure or some uh, option that only some people could buy into is not where we need to go. We need to go full Medicare for all. Um, and then people on not even on the right, but s- centrist <laughs> Democrats and also the um, the healthcare um, powerful industries are they're going to fight this tooth and nail. They're going to fight any 
expansion, no matter how incremental. <laughs> and we're already seeing that play out. You know, I will say, I think what Democrats, one thing Democrats have going for them is they're agreed on one thing, and that is that they all want universal coverage. And Republicans could never reach agreement on what that was. Um, but of course, well, Republicans I, don't really want universal coverage. Right. right they don't. Well, instead, like Trump some, has like sort of said off the cuff that he wants it, but not. You'll get different answers <laughs> depending on which Republican you talk to. But um, but but so that's that's sort of the goal. But there's lots and lots of division over how to get there. And of course, we saw the new numbers this week that the uninsured rate is higher at its highest rate since 2014. And we'll get to that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the the Kaiser Family Foundation poll that came out also this week was really interesting and really telling. And I think shows the problem that Democrats sort of on the extreme end who are supporting the Bernie Sanders style Medicare for All are going to face. Because when people hear Medicare for All, that sounds really good to them. It's like, but, oh, everybody gets covered. Exactly. It's basically free. Everyone's going to be like? happy. Right. Exactly. And, and this is the trap Democrats often fall into is they like to promise lots of stuff and don't like to talk about that it costs money. Um, so, so people like the idea. But then when you explain to them, like legitimate things like maybe you might you might have to pay higher taxes if you expand or maybe this would change your access to providers or the amount of time that you might have to wait for a visit uh, support really goes down and so um, I think that's what Dems are gonna run up against that there's sort of this educate well first first they have to decide on like are they going to unify around something and I don't think they're really going to in the next couple of years this is going to remain sort of a like an out there topic that the 2020 candidates are going to talk about. But I think House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is very cognizant of the fact that it, it doesn't really make sense for her to peg her members down on a bill if it's not, if it's going to be blocked by the Republicans in the Senate. Um, and not signed by the president. And not by the Senate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, when, once they – but if they do end up coalescing at some point, you know, there's going to be a lot of details to, to iron out and a lot of details to explain to people. And so I think this is like a really long road ahead for them and there's just going to be a lot of swirling and speculation about what is Medicare for all over the next couple of years. And that's why I think it's interesting as this as this debate remains up in the air, you're really seeing a lot of um, Democratic states explore what they can do on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you see, that momentum is going to really be a test, I think, for the Trump administration. They've approved all these requests that are more conservative for um, red states. What are they going to do when it comes time when some of those blue states come forward like California wants to do a single payer? So this is happening at the same time. The states are trying to test some of these ideas. And it was interesting to me how the Kaiser poll that came out this week seemed to be this Rorschach test where everybody took away from it the the fine they sort of cherry picked the findings that supported their political position. And so the full Medicare for all people say, look, this shows that nearly 60 percent of Americans support the idea of Medicare for all. Look how popular it is. We should go for it. Um, And uh, other folks who are opposed to that say, no, look, look at this finding where when uh, Democrats are asked, would you rather um, Congress focus on protecting the Affordable Care Act or going for Medicare for all? Most people said protecting the Affordable Care Act. You can argue that's a false choice. They could do both. But so everyone's sort of picking. And like Paige said, people are pointing to how malleable the support for Medicare for all is. That's been true for Mm -hmm. years. You tell someone this and support goes down. You tell someone that support goes up. So the messaging is going to be very 
crucial here. So this is sort of similar to the polling we saw on the Affordable Care Act, too, mm-hmm. sometimes is like people heard Obamacare, Obamacare. I don't like Obamacare. But then when they were told it was the reason that people had protection for pre-existing conditions, as said, well, they like those parts of it. Mm-hmm. Well, this is exactly the opposite. Though. They like the concept. But as soon as you get down to yeah. the idea, you know, it would get rid of all of your employer insurance. And it would. They're like, oh, no, no, don't do that, please. So, and we know how well that worked out for Obama when he had promised, yeah. if you like your plan, you'll keep it. And then the blowback, people don't like to lose coverage that they already have and that they like. Right. Even, even if they're promised something better and even if they think what they have sucks and is too expensive, that, that fear is still there. That's why it's really risky for Democrats as you look at 2020 up ahead, especially whatever they do potentially coalesce around. How well is that going to sell even in red areas that you know care about health care but maybe don't want to go that far? And it's really going to leave them vulnerable to Republican attacks. So they've got to tread carefully on this. Too. I'm really interested in some of these early skirmishes where I guess we've had we have two committees who've now promised to have hearings on Medicare for all, which, by the way, are not the first hearings. There were hearings over during the Affordable Care Act. There were hearings back during the Clinton plan in the early 1990s. Um, but uh, the, 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 I think the most significant thing that's happened is that we have the chairman of the Budget Committee asking the Congressional Budget Office to actually right. examine how much Medicare for all would cost. That's going to be really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And and also they were supposed to look at kind of ways it could work, like mm-hmm. not just an overall cost number. So that, I think, is really going to drive a lot of the conversation once that's out. So I think, I mean, I think, Paige, you're right. I don't think that, that Nancy Pelosi is going to let this come to the floor because why should she make her more conservative members, you know, kind of walk the plank on this? But I do think that there's going to be a lot of ground laying for 2020. Well, one thing I'm watching, too, that, I mean, Julie, you might, you have, might have more perspective on this, but we haven't seen any Republicans really sign on to any of the more moderate bills, because like some of the ideas like, you know, uh, lowering the eligibility age for Medicare down to, say, like 55 seems like something that could potentially be bipartisan. But we haven't really seen that so far. I'm not sure they have been. I mean, there have been a lot of these over the years that none none of these things are new. Um, There were there was some idea, but I don't I mean, Republicans, Republicans can't even vote to open the government at this point. <laughs> it's hard to see them signing on to, to a Medicare for more bill. Also, we have there are fewer moderate Republicans, um, particularly yeah. in the House. Um, where, but also in the Senate. Yeah, in the Senate, too. I mean, you're right. I think it, typically that would have been a past Congress. Maybe it could have been yeah, a point of but this time. I don't know. We have to wait and see. It's all uh, health care. I think the big sort of unknown in the in and, the 2020 campaign. Right. And you're really seeing people keeping their options open and not committing too hard to either side. And a lot of the people who are endorsing and signed on to the Bernie Sanders all the way Medicare for all bill are also signed Mm -hmm. on to these more incremental, moderate, middle of the road options. Although it is notable the four Democratic members of Congress who have announced presidential bids have all, I believe, signed on to the Bernie Sanders bill. Yeah, but then yeah. when you when you sort of start pushing them, they start saying that, you know, they really just want you. I think you were the one page that said everybody wants universal coverage. It's just how you get there. And how fast. <laughs> and how fast. All right. Well, I want to talk about Medicaid this week, too. Um, we're seeing the Trump administration approving more and more work requirements for working age adults. Arizona is the latest. But in the state where this has been going on the longest, Arkansas, there seems to be an awful lot of people who are working but are losing their coverage regardless. What can we say at this point about the work requirements? Alice, you've been sort of keeping an eye on this. 
an interesting thing folks are pointing to in Arkansas. So one, just thousands more every month. Yeah, we're up to like 18,000? 18,000. 18, yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, one, I'm shocked there there has been a lawsuit and there hasn't been an injunction. I mean, there was an injunction in Kentucky when zero people had lost their insurance. Because it hadn't started. Because it, it hadn't started, but to prevent it from, from starting and having that potential harm – Meanwhile, in Arkansas, you have 18,000 people have lost their insurance and there's not an injunction yet. So that's curious to me. But also um, folks uh, on the ground are pointing to the fact that the people who lost their insurance at the end of last year are eligible to reapply now. In Arkansas. But only a tiny, tiny fraction are reapplying. And that just is another piece of evidence that the system is very confusing and bureaucratic and people and that is what is leading to people losing their insurance, not the fact that there aren't working. Yeah, they, we, we talk, we've talked about this at some length, some, some really good investigative reporting out of Arkansas about mm-hmm. people who are working and they're working mm-hmm. full time, but running the traps to prove to the state that you're working enough hours has turned out to be, you know, extraordinarily difficult. So what you're ending up with is not that people are getting, are losing their coverage because they're not working, they're losing their coverage because they're unable to report to the state mm-hmm. that they're working. Well, isn't Arkansas one of the stricter ones in terms of the yeah. reporting requirements yes. the yes. state's well, they so started. They started out. You had you could only report online, right? right. Was, and, and and it turned out to be, I mean, incredibly difficult task. I mean, it was sort of screen after screen after screen. And then I think they added a phone number, but then you can never get through on the phone number. And then if you miss three months of reporting, mm-hmm. then you're basically Correct. locked out of the system. Mm-hmm. Until the next year. But even now that people can reapply, they're just not doing it. They're they're like they've fallen through the cracks. <laughs> so the other sort of big Medicaid news is the administration is reportedly looking at at doing a block grant, somehow trying to limit Medicaid funding from the federal government. This was something that was part of most of the House or I guess the, the congressional efforts to remake the Affordable Care Act in, in 2017. And one of the big reasons that it failed because Republicans, even Republicans, were loath to vote for that. Stephanie, you, you wrote about this. What is the administration thinking about? Well, if you look at the Medicaid waiver that uh, Utah applied for, um, it's basically the idea would be it would be largely along those lines, which definitely gives states, you know, a lot more flex- flexibility. Um, the, you know, the, the, the cap um, definitely would be there. But from a number of the analysts that I talked with were really pointing out that you can Basically, what the waiver would allow you to do is pretty similar to what can already be done. Like the, it, it's not taking it to a full quote block grant status. It's um, kind where of basically a, states just get yeah, a chunk of money and they can do what they whatever want. Whatever they it's, want, but right. it would be limited. Right, right. I mean, there there's still pretty strenuous guardrails on this that, in fact, even conservative states may not like. So um, it, it's. Calling it a block grant works, but it's not really a full block grant. It's not really what Republicans were setting out to do. I mean, yes, there's still parameters of what you need to cover. There's still, um, you know, you may be able to use uh, subsidies in different ways to buy coverage on Medicaid instead. So it sets up potentially flexibility, but it's, it's really not quite as whole hog as what Republicans would like to see. What I'm curious about this is whether states would go for it because... As yeah, that's the question. Saw- the flexibility is not 
what is kind of not flexibility right. could be granted? Yeah, I mean, I talked to the uh, to to Matt Sallow at the Medicaid directors yesterday about this, and he suggested that there are some things Seema Verma, the CMS administrator, could do. I mean, she talks about flexibility, so okay, well, I guess they could allow these states that have asked for partial Medicaid expansion up to just 100 percent of federal poverty level. Maybe they could grant that. They last summer they denied Massachusetts' request for a drug formulary for Medicaid. Uh, maybe that's something they could revisit. But it seems kind of unclear, like, what would be the carrot for – I mean, even if you look at, like, some conservative states, money isn't always the aim, right? Like, maximizing the amount of federal money you pocket isn't always the aim. And that was shown through how they've rejected those extra dollars for Medicaid expansion. Um but I'm just I'm curious to see like what their calculation would be and why they would why why they would feel it would benefit them to actually actively request CMS right, for a waiver. Right, especially when it still has to abide by a lot of what currently you have to do in these waivers. So, right. Yeah, the flexibility is not nearly as grandiose as. It yeah. may be with a traditional block grant. But I think, like, it's, it seems like, at least in Seema Verma's mind, this is something that she's been contemplating for a long time and, and really wants to find a way to advance it. And I think there's probably some, like, lasting regret that, you know, Republicans in Congress weren't able to pass any of their health care bills, which, of course, would have set up sort of a block grant style yep. kind of approach, both in the House and the Senate bills and then in the Grimm-Cassidy bill, too. We will see how, how that plays out. Um one more from the the very nerdy file. The Trump administration uh, has released its regulation for the Affordable Care Act marketplaces for 2020. Um, Stephanie, you actually wrote about this rule, which will help just you know determine what the individual market looks like for next year. Are there? Uh, I, I guess the, it's the a big, big deal. New, uh, yeah, but it's I guess the, the big news yeah. were the things that they didn't do in this rule, right? True, they did not ban silver loading, which um, is a practice that basically allows individuals with subsidies to be buffered from some of the premium increases. Um, they did not end auto enrollment, um, automatic auto enrollment, which is, I think, about a quarter of the individuals use auto enrollment to get back on. Which so means if you don't go on the marketplace yeah, and shop every year, you're automatically put into another plan. Um, they did signal that they are looking at those two issues, but there had been a lot of concern in the industry that that would go into effect. But they're saying not at least not until 2021. Um, so after the election. So, yes, that is a relief. But they really are doing a number of things that um, I think surprised a number of people in the industry. They're uh, changing the indexing formula for uh, the subsidies so that individuals who get the, the t- um, premium tax credits will have to pay more for their coverage. And uh, they also, as um, unrelated to that, are going to raise the out-of-pocket maximum for people who have uh, employer plans, um, individual and family. I think individual was by well, yeah, it was by two hundred dollars more for individuals and four hundred more for family. Which is interesting because even though they changed the indexing formula for subsidized people, it it didn't have to be coupled with that increase for the employer plans, unless that's something Treasury was saying they had to do. So it was really interesting that they also did that. Um, and this rule was significantly delayed, so insurers are really concerned because they have to say by spring and design plans by spring, and this still needs to go through a public comment period. Um, we've got the shutdown and what kind of slowdown that may create um, is unknown. Um, so this was this was sort of an interesting surprise, and I think it got to what some of the Republicans have been saying is that these subsidies are too generous, um, and by making individuals with subsidies pay more – I wonder if the administration is seeing this as more of an equalizing factor. 
Well, I think it'll <clears throat> what the actuary calculated it would save like nine hundred million dollars mm-hmm. or something. So maybe they're trying to find um, some money for Trump's border wall request. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they did reduce user fees, um, which is what that's it, not going to build very much. No, wall. no, <laughs> but it is indicative of the the. The fact that they just aren't doing a lot of outreach and spending, so they don't necessarily need that much anymore. I mean, it almost feels like this is, you know, they're they're sort of finding ways to to sort of depress how well the marketplaces mm-hmm. work without exactly. doing dramatic stuff. Like, I mean, if they got rid of silver loading, I mean, the whole reason that silver loading was there was because Trump canceled the cost sharing reduction, the federal cost sharing coping reduction mechanism. Although, exactly. Mm-hmm. Although, if you think about it, if they ended silver loading, that could potentially um, haunt the White House and Republicans in the election. I mean, that could cause such turmoil that that could backfire. So there may be some political calculations involved here. Well, too. but the thing about well, I was going to finish the thing about silver loading is that what it ended up doing was making all of these great bargains for some people because basically all their the, the, it's the what silver loading is is that the the subsidies are calculated based on the cost of the silver plan, and so they put all the increases on the silver plan, which makes the subsidies bigger. So we had these situations where people could buy a gold plan for free because the subsidies from the the higher cost silver plants were so big. Um, so it, it and it, it actually is costing the government, the federal government more than it was costing just to provide to, to give the, the the money to the insurance companies who were giving these discounts to people with incomes under 250 percent of poverty. So it's, you know, one of these sort of every time you push down someplace, it rises up someplace else. And oh, they're I think not spending a, on the cost sharing subsidies. So there you go. I know, but they're spending more on the subsidies <laughs> know, because of right, the silver load. Right, right. So, so I mean, net net, it's costing the federal government war, more, yeah. which I think they're just noticing. Well, it's interesting. It is an interesting kind of incremental approach because if they were trying to go like full hog over after the the increase, the basically spending, they could have banned silver loading. But I think Stephanie's right that you would have gotten a lot more yeah, pushback the from the risk is is also in terms of the the tumult in the market. I think potentially it would have dramatically increased premiums for basically yeah, everybody, and and that could have really haunted Republicans. I think if if they and the White House, I think they're that potentially could have had a lot of blowback. And the further away we get from the passage of the Affordable Care Act, I think, in all of sort of the early Republican attempts to repeal, replace, I think the more people are going to like blame Republicans for what happens or hold Republicans accountable for what happens with the marketplaces. I mean, now we're in, what, the second or third year under the Trump administration Mm -hmm. that they've been running the marketplaces. So, I mean, at some point, like, you, you can't blame President Obama forever, like on, <laughs> on how the marketplaces are doing. I'm sure they will try. All right. Well, one more item this week that kind of ties everything together. Um, we had a report from Gallup that the rate of uninsured is creeping back up. According to the Gallup survey, it's now the highest since 2014, just as the Affordable Care Act was taking effect. According to Gallup, that means an estimated 7 million more adult Americans are now uninsured. There's some questions because apparently Gallup changed their methodology, so it's not really one continuous look anymore. But I think one of the things that it does show is it's, this is not the first survey to suggest that what the administration is doing to Medicaid, what it's doing to the Affordable Care Act, that those things are, are having an impact on um, people without insurance. Is that Yeah, I think would... the Gallup poll was especially interesting because, one, it got a lot of interest. Um, and I think it shows that people are really watching these barometers of what's happening with coverage. And y- 
this is sort of just the latest piece of evidence in these growing number of studies, whether it's coming out of, you know, CDC or which really only had the first year of the Trump administration. But and all of these studies and research are showing that it's either the decline that was happening under the Obama administration has stalled or else that it's creeping up. So no matter how you look at it, that's going to be a talking point in the campaign. And it's a it's a potential risk for Republicans um, that this could come back to haunt them. But the, the it, interesting also that the Gallup tried to suss out what was going on um, and, you know, did point to some of the things the Trump administration has done as potentially one reason for what they believe is the increase. And I thought it was interesting that the Gallup and other um, folks who are studying the same issue um, have all found that um, the rate of uninsurance among young people is going up faster than for the general population. And just thinking back to how much effort the Obama administration put into convincing young people to sign up for the Affordable Care Act and how that is completely gone now. President Obama went on between two ferns. <laughs> there was a lot of... forget that interview. <laughs> that right. was so funny. And tried to get all these celebrities, you know, to... In to... red states, they're mm-hmm. seeing, you know, that some of the states in the South are also seeing some of the bigger increases. Right. I will say, though, if, if there's a bright spot for the uninsured rate, it, it will probably be that, you know, several states did approve Medicaid expansion. Right. So, so that that could kind of counteract things like as we see that roll out in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. I've said this before. We, we're going to end up sort of pre-ACA where your ability to get insurance depends almost exclusively on where you live, um, certainly what state you live in, which was sort of the exact opposite, opposite of what, of the, what the ACA of was the trying ACA. to do. Right. Yeah. So. yeah. And so for for that reason, I think it's interesting. So just, just this week, um, there was a bill introduced in the House to make um, – the incentive for Medicaid expansion, uh, the same now for states that haven't expanded yet as it was when the Affordable Care Act first started. Now, whether or not that's the tipping point for states, since many states will not expand no matter what, they just... Do you mean in terms of the federal contribution? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So making the federal match the same as it was for states that jumped on board at the beginning where it was 100% covered at first. Right. And then um, three years yes, it starts exactly. to, yeah, to go down. Um, and I mean, like you said, it's still a very good deal. <laughs> the way it currently is in terms of the amount of federal dollars you can pull Yeah, it's in. 90% into perpetuity. Right. right. Those uh, in red states who have argued against it often point to the 10% that states do have to put up now. So the bill in Congress, in the House, who knows if it will go anywhere, it's at least attempting to address that and make it more enticing for states to expand. Well, much more to look forward to. Um, But that is the news for the week. Uh, It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Paige, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, well, a story from my colleagues Christopher Rowland and Jeff Stein at The Post. This story really caught my eye. It's uh, called Anonymous Ghost Ship is Among Groups Flooding Drug Pricing Debate. And basically, they dive into this group called Citizens for American Ideas. And this is a group that launched a website in December, and it's been criticizing Democrats' plan to curb drug drug costs in Medicare. And there's a lot of like really shady stuff around this group. My colleagues like tried to figure out who's funding them, who's behind it, who set up, and really wasn't able to find out very much information at all. It looked, they write that its website was formed using an 
internet service that conceals the actual owner. Um, it just has really murky origins. And, um, uh, you know, they checked in with pharma and um, some of the other drug groups who are denying any connection to this group. Um, but they're just kind of making the point through this article that some of these groups that t- they claim to be grassroots or whatever are that are r- running ads against these drug pricing efforts um, are kind of cloaked in secrecy and we're not sure who's funding them. So Ultimate very astroturf. Yes. Which, is, which, is, which I think dates back to the Reagan years about these, these groups that are sort of the faux grassroots groups that are right. actually funded by industry, but it's very hard to find out who. Yeah. Stephanie? Uh, I'm doing a story from uh, Politico by Brianna Ellie and Rachel Robin. Uh, it's on healthcare. It's I'm trying not to die right now. Why opioid addicted patients are still searching for help, and it lays out the um, balkanized treatment system that we have for individuals with um, substance abuse addiction problems, and really lays out the fact that you know the kind of treatment you may get is based on the insurance you have, based on state regulation, which often is is spotty, and that. The reason I think the story is really interesting is there have been a number of stories on this issue, but it's really an overlooked issue that doesn't get the attention it deserves. I mean, think about this. When we put limits on opioids, um, we did not uh, put the same amount of funding and effort into treatment, so hence fentanyl uh, took off. So I, as we try to tackle this this epidemic and this crisis, the treatment that's available is so key and so important, and this story really lays um, out some of the problems that still need to be addressed. Alice? I also have a story from the Washington Post, a fairly terrifying one um, by Lena Sun called They Went to Mexico for Surgery. They Came Back with a Deadly Superbug. It is about um, the growing problem of medical tourism, people who are going for surgeries or procedures abroad because they can't afford it here in the United States. And sometimes it's way cheaper in other countries. Way cheaper. And sometimes their insurance won't cover it here. Um, so they'd have to pay completely out of pocket. So it's cheaper to pay completely out of pocket in another country. But a lot of people are contracting these really deadly infections that cannot be treated with an- any antibiotics that are currently available. And they are bringing those infections back to the U.S. And it's a very scary public health problem um, for anyone who could come in contact with those people. Um, Right, because it's not just limited to them. Exactly, exactly. Um, And so, yeah, thinking this is sort of a several steps removed consequence of how expensive our our system is and how uh, much is um, falls on the patient and is not covered by insurance. I have to say, I sit next to Lena at the Post, and I got to overhear her end of the interview with this woman who got the bariatric bariatric surgery right. in Tijuana. And, and Lena's just like, oh, my gosh, you know, if you could just tell <laughs> it was a really yeah, and the terrible... the pictures are, are upsetting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And but, and that also shows it's, it's this weird line between what's cosmetic surgery and what's like a medical necessity because this woman had this weight loss surgery um, that would not be covered by insurance, but she did it because her doctor strongly, strongly recommended it. And so it's this sort of blurry line there. All right. Well, I also have a depressing story, (laughs) also from the Washington Post, um, about the increase in vets, particularly female vets, committing suicide. But these are not vets as in veterans. They are vets as in veterinarians. There seems to be a lot of reasons, says David Leffler, who wrote the story, but a big one and why I think it's relevant to our show, it seems to be student debt. Vet school is every bit as hard to get into as medical school, harder in some cases, and it costs almost as much. But while people who graduate with an MD or DO degree, 
doctors for humans uh, graduate with six-figure debts, can generally pay it off with six or even seven-figure salaries while they're working. Veterinarians tend to earn a whole lot less, and so they end up working almost nonstop just to keep up with their debt load. So I think you should think about that the next time you take your pet for medical care. Plus, my daughter wants to be a vet. <laughs> well, <it's... laughs> just show her the story. <laughs> she wants something more lucrative than being a journalist. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's more lucrative than being a journalist. But I mean, but you don't need a fancy degree to be a journalist. Yeah. This is true. And yes, and it's not as hard to get into journalism school as it is to get into vet school. All right. That is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. And if you're here in D.C., you can come see us. We're doing next week's show. That's January 31st in front of a live audience. I'll post a link to RSVP on the podcast page at khn.org. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At pw underscore Cunningham. At stepharmor1. At Alice Alstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.